Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm J.P. Peck. I'm Sean K.B. And I'm A.P. Andy. It's a pleasure to be back with the original crew. Uh, we've been with you for over a hundred episodes, but we got some really good feedback recently when uh, it was just the three of us on the show. People said it reminded them of the earlier days. So we're back, and uh, it's good to be back, all three of us. <laughs> yep, just like old times. <laughs> You're pretending to be Jamie and also pretending to be the guy who wrote the song for our podcast. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. So we're going to have an interview today with Tanaga Neva, who's a writer for The Intercept and The Appeal, about how the police and the prisons suck. Uh, before that, I just wanted to let people know that we are only 100 patrons away from our goal of 1,917 patrons. Very arbitrary number. Arbitrary number. If you sign up, if you're one of those 100 to sign up, you'll get a thank you postcard signed by us. Here uh, at the, the Antifada, we're big fans of the World War One film, 1917. <laughs> And the postcards will be made in just one cut, just one big postcard <laughs> set out to everybody. Um, and you can just go look at your sliver of it. Shipping is going to be hell, but that's on us. Well, war is hell, so it's only <laughs> appropriate that shipping would be too. And if you sign up at the $10 level, you'll get the postcard and a prize pack. So please subscribe today. Nice um, plugging, man. That was great. And so now here's our interview with Tana Geneva. And after that, we're going to talk about comedy and Marxism. That's right. How are you guys? Like you said, day 1000 of the pandemic. It's right. one thing after another. Yeah. So much, so many calamities. Like everyone I know has had, you know, like I, like pandemic and then also I busted up my knees running and then twisted my ankle just like mm-hmm. one thing after the other yeah I've been saying since the very beginning that this is we should call this this is in fact the triple crisis it's a social yeah. crisis it's an e- uh, economic crisis and it's a political crisis and one of the crises that one of the ways in which the political crisis has expressed itself is in what seems to be a collapse of trust in the uh, law enforcement um, uh, operatives in the United States right now, which I think is very much on your radar, right? Yeah, and also kind of a good thing. Like, people shouldn't trust most cops. Agreed. Not all cops. <laughs> like, oh, go ahead. No, no, I agree. <laughs> I didn't want to make that be like, well, it's a shame people don't uh, trust right. their local neighborhood police officers anymore. Right, like, don't, like, respect the boys in blue. Like, we like never. No, I mean, I think, uh, so, by the way, like, just, to get started, I'm definitely not like, you know, a sort of like, oh, cops are fascist pigs, every single one of them. Like, I don't go that far. I do think there's a minority of officers who go into it because they have a passion for public service and maybe have some sort of like hero complex or whatever and are good, but like institutionally and all the other kind of like assholes are so bad that, I mean, the institution, like, I think is losing a lot of legitimacy. And I think that's a good thing that might hopefully lead to some sort of like decent change. Well, there's one crisis that we don't have to worry about, according to Andrew Cuomo, because uh, he said on June 14th to Black Lives Matter, you don't need to protest. You won. (laughs) You accomplished your goal. Society says you're right. The police need systematic reform. So in your article for The Intercept earlier this month, you talk about 
how some of that reform is basically just a shell game that actually allows the police to adjust a little bit, but essentially protect their inherently abusive culture. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things they did, which, you know, when Cuomo declared victory over, like, police, police violence, um, uh, with, I mean, the main thing they did, which is, like, not insignificant, is that they disbanded the plainclothes detective unit, which is, like, these guys, I mean, most of them would just, like, ride around their neighborhoods and, like, beat the crap out of people or arrest people without even telling them that they were police. So people were like, holy shit, somebody's kidnapping me or, like, beating me up. Blah. That and almost happened to me would, recently. quote, unquote, like, resist arrest and then get in more trouble and get arrested. Um, but anyway, but the point is that, like, Instead of reviewing the records of these plain, formerly plain close detectives, they just like put them in other jobs. And there's absolutely no transparency um, about like what jobs they were put into, like dust duty as punishment, like nothing. So like that's like one example of like a very small pseudo reform that like did nothing to hold police accountable. And, like another another like seemingly good thing that Cuomo did was. Um, overturn 58 which is like um some kind of like a measure that keeps officer disciplinary records private but then like within a couple of weeks a judge um overturned it so like now once again like a lot of police disciplinary records are um are are not available to the public and a lot of those were leaked to pro publica and it was sort of talked about online as if now we have all of the complaints against every cop. And now if a cop is a, a jerk to you, you can look it up. But it seems like it's only a very small number of the complaints that actually make it to the point where they can be leaked. Like, what is it, like 75 a year or something out of thousands of complaints? Well, um, what ProPublica did was like very, very smartly do a FOIA request or a FOIA request, like right before the judge, um, you know, uh, reversed the 50A order. Um, unfortunately, and this is like not their fault. It's just like how confusing the um, civilian uh, complaint review board is. Um, so, like for example, the ProPublica database doesn't does not include complaints in which the main complainant or witnesses were deemed uncooperative like that's just not in the database and literally all that means is that like the investigators just like lost touch with the people or people were too scared to like continue with the investigation which is completely like understandable given that these cops are still patrolling their neighborhoods so like that's a big hole in the database um, what else is missing? I mean, okay, so, like, what I noticed with some of the flaws in that collection of information is that, like, an officer from the Bronx that I profiled, whose literal nickname is Ass Man, which, like, <laughs> guess why? It's not a fun reason. It's not, not like in reason. Seinfeld. Yeah. yeah, he went to the DMV and they gave him the license plate. And <laughs> said, you like, are Ass Man. Like, no. Like, the jaunty comedy from the 90s. Like, no. I mean, so this guy... There are these like four documented cases where this guy um, um, did like very aggressive anal cavity uh, searches of suspects, which is like completely prohibited by NYPD protocol, and in fact fits the FBI's definition of uh, of rape, uh, which is that um, 
rape constitutes any situation where somebody penetrates a body cavity with like a finger or genitalia or an object or anything else. So this guy's basically a rapist. Um, and yeah, I mean, he still has his job. Um, oh, and then oh, so I was talking about the ProPublica database. Like I looked him up in the database and he's not um, shown to be in any of the, um, like uh, in the categories of anal cavity searches. Like if you look him up, he only has three complaints against him. When in reality, he's got 60, uh, which I was able to find out before the 58 order was reversed. Um, he doesn't show up on, in, in, uh, on any of the like accusations of cavity searches. And what I found out was that um, there's this segment of the CCRB called the APU, which is like the prosecutorial unit. And they basically take on the worst of the worst cases, but because those cases are currently ongoing, um, they also weren't provided to ProPublica. So in a sense, like, the worst of the worst are, like, not in that database, including S-Man. One of the officers involved in the Eric Garner case was uh, up to mm-hmm. the same thing. I don't have a... The, I, it could be the same guy. I don't. I didn't have to look it up or whatever, but I remember reading about that in uh, Taibbi's book, Killing on Bay Street. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is essentially a serial rapist with a badge, you know? Right, absolutely. And I mean, that's not, you know, it's like, to be fair, like, this practice is, like, fairly rare, uh, or, or quite rare. But what's not rare is, like, please framing people, please beating the crap out of people for no reason, please breaking into people's homes and, like, literally robbing them. Um, yeah, so that's not the only, like, form of, like, horrific abuse, for sure. Another one of the reforms passed uh, in, in New York and nationwide is uh, a ban on chokeholds. And, yeah. and the, as much as the police sometimes say like, oh, this, you know, we do need reform. We need better resources and guidances or whatever. They seem to be very upset about this ban on chokeholds and they at times even suggesting yeah. that they can't effectively make arrests because of the ban. Yeah, you know, that's why everyone keeps getting shot in New York because nobody's choking them to almost death. Um, no, so, I mean, that's a really good point to bring up because I think, yeah, like, the official chokehold ban is good. But there's definitely evidence, like, based on, like, lawsuits I've looked at and, like, CCRB complaints that, for example, cops are still continuing to arrest people for small amounts of pot, which they should not be doing. And also, they're still doing tons and tons of stop and frisk, which, as far as I know, was banned in 2011. So, like, even an official ban on, like, an abusive practice doesn't mean that, like, it's going to, you know, take effect in the field. Yeah. I like how uh, we've uh, disbanded the plainclothes department but not fired those officers, meaning they just have to put on the uniforms. But, you know, (laughs) these officers will violate that and put on plainclothes just just because we told them not to, (laughs) you know? Oh, totally. Yeah, I was like, when that came out, I was so curious because I was like, okay, so wait, does that just mean they have desk jobs now or does it mean that they're like never allowed to wear normal clothes or go outside? Like, I kind of doubt it. So, yes, like, I totally agree. I think this would be violated constantly. Isn't um, part of this a, uh, a twofold issue, which is that police, not just in New York City, but across the country, have become somewhat autonomous from political structures that they're supposed to be beholden to. And also that, not just recently, but for decades, maybe a century, the culture within the police department, because of their structural role, is rotten to the core. 
It seems as though uh, this sort of violent fraternity of individuals, uh, autonomous from the state and from communities, is um, just sort of festering, you know, and and, uh, and and the reforms necessary would would have to go beyond simply taking some guys and making them put on uniforms and so on, so forth. Right. No, absolutely. So yeah, that's absolutely true. I would I would say I mean. Yeah, yeah, autonomous from like political institutions, but I would say also like very aggressively bullying them. It's like it's obvious that Bill de Blasio is petrified of the NYPD. Oh, yeah, big time. So I would almost say like they hold like an oppressive power over like political institutions that should actually be regulating them. Um, at least, I mean, I'm not as familiar with other police departments, but that's definitely true of the NYPD. Have you heard of the um, the NYPD challenge coins? Did you see that when that when that came out? No, I can't wait to hear what that's about. Uh, challenge coins were started in the military, and then uh, decades ago they became part of uh, you know the sort of culture of police departments, especially in NYC. And uh, it was leaked recently, all these different, like, commemorative coins, essentially, that people would trade, different officers and detectives would trade with one another, and they commemorate a certain event or a certain precinct or whatever. When, you, when this came out and when I saw this a couple of weeks ago, this is what I'm talking about, the culture uh, being yeah. uh, screwed up. One of them is uh, basically, like, a quote from a detective uh, about, and, and like, uh, it's called The Rat. It's a little coin that looks like an ambulance because some guy uh, uh, had uh, essentially tried to call out. He was a whistleblower within the department about deep corruption and violence. And the uh, deputy chief, this guy Marino, was able to actually get him committed. They sent him to Bellevue. Something, right? Adrian... Yeah. Schoolcraft. And so so that happened, right? And then this guy was like... the, the, the. the psych facility was used against this guy basically to harass him and to get him out of the whistleblower program by this internal culture of the police. But also they had a coin commemorating it, too, that they would pass around and basically celebrate the fact that they were able to get a rat committed to Bellevue. I bet Officer Assman has a lot of one type of coin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that's the only joke I'm going to make about him. Uh. There, there's others of them calling and and portraying uh you know citizens of the city as zombies you know ones that were given out in like high drug uh business there's another one where this one officer had shot seven people in the head and it commemorated his seven shots but as it turns out only four of those people were actually criminals the other three had been innocent civilians but it's still celebrated him getting headshots on these people very deep vicious destructive brutal internal culture there's the asset forfeiture unit coin which is just a bag of money with a picture of a large house and a car on it <laughs> i'm not even making that up no, this is it's, like it's the based. best this it's is so based. the best branding the NYPD has for anything and it's just their coins celebrating how abusive and how crooked they are. Exactly. Well, this is just gamer bullshit, which goes to show you how dehumanizing and like divorcing the job of police is from the humanity of the people that they're you know supposedly serving and protecting or whatever. That's insane. Yeah, that's completely insane. Yeah, I'm making so like a. How can you yeah. reform that? Is the question. How can you reform that? Press the reset button. Like, you really can't, especially since there's so much pushback, like, when even the most completely shallow surface reforms are floated. And, I mean, again, I will not – I'm a little bit mean to de Blasio, but, I mean, 
I cannot emphasize enough, like, what a wuss he is and how terrified he is of, like, NYPD insurrection. It's crazy. Well, I think part of it for de Blasio is he knows that a lot of a lot of people are leaving the city. A lot of them wealthy, wealthy people who have the ability to leave the city, you know, to like go to their second house upstate or just to move upstate or, or wherever. And that's going to really hurt the city's tax revenue, which, you know, hurts their kind of liberal utopian dreams of building condos with like 20 percent affordable housing, you know, whatever. Affordable like not, meaning ninety thousand dollars. All year of their income. like bad schemes are like anchored to the fact that rich people stay in the city and stay paying taxes and they're going to do it less if the cops have a slowdown like people are it doesn't have to be shootings people are terrified of graffiti so if there's more graffiti people are going to leave and there's going to be less tax revenue right they're like oh we're terrified of homeless people yeah you're right yeah but i mean the blonde has always been kind of like had such a strange relationship with the nypd i think i mean do you guys remember the episode where the police turned their backs on him. Like, I, I think oh, yeah. it might have been when he said that he was worried about his, like, half-black son in encounters with the cops. And then there was some event where, like, all the officers yeah. turned their backs on him. And I think, like, ever since then, he's just been, like, totally hands-off about any sort of, like, real reform. Well, he's had a fraught, like... He's yeah. had... Uh, it's, it's almost like um, watching, like, The Office or something where you get that, like, cringe <laughs> embarrassment. His entire career, he's been... Basically making the wrong move strategically, trying to make right with both Black Lives Matter and the police, and somehow just making everyone matter and matter at him. Terrible political instincts, to say the least. You know, but also... Right. (laughs) He was almost our presidential nominee. I deserve this job. Why not? Yeah. But I think what de Blasio and Cuomo's uh, proposed police reforms indicate is that you know, even the well-meaning liberals who agree that there's a crisis in policing and it needs to be changed, their solution for it is to clean up the bad apples and put more funding into kinds of training or like, you know, uh, redirect funding to community policing. And the stuff that was kind of used to like chill out Black Lives Matter in 2014, 2015, that people don't accept anymore. And that's why they're saying time to defund, dismantle and, and abolish the police. And the, the liberal response to this is like, well, that's not going to solve anything. Like we need to change the culture in policing. But the only way they want to do it is by is through transparency, um, firing the bad apples. Bias training. And even that is, is like, I think what, what your article shows is that they are able to, the, the culture of police are able to adapt very easily to those menial reforms, and they're able to continue doing what they have been doing with no real effect. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, I could just imagine, yeah, as you point out, like 2014, 2015, like a bunch of bored ass cops, like not taking diversity training seriously and making fun of it and just seeing it as a pain in the ass, um, and everything else. I mean, even, like, okay, so even the concept of, like, oh, it's just a few bad apples, well, like, at least in terms of the NYPD, even the bad apples don't get fired. So it's, like, even that ridiculous, like, underestimate of how abusive these forces are, like, even that, like, the bad apples don't get fired. Like, ass man is still patrolling the Bronx, doing God knows what. He's like, a really bad apple. Um, yeah. <laughs> Or like I looked at, um, so I'm going to, uh, I'm probably going to publish a story about this sometime next week, but I did like a deep dive analysis of the 75th precinct, um, in East New York. And first of all, this 
precinct has the craziest history. So, like, in the 80s, a group of detectives literally, like, collaborated with the drug cartels to, like, run drugs. They were bribed. They would rob the drug dealers. Finally, one guy, one of them, like, overshot and um, planned to murder a rival drug dealer's wife. And then his partner turned him in, and he actually did go to prison for 13 years, which is not that long comparative to, like, you know, sentences for, like, shoplifting, for example, um, in America. But so, you know, it has this crazy history. And then I looked at their recent numbers, and there's about, like, close to 60 uh, officers who have gotten um, a CCRB complaint that's, like, the most severe. The one where the CCRB is, like, this is substantiated, and also we want to press charges. Like, this was an egregious, like, act of misconduct. And I looked at their, I, like, matched up their um, uh, CCRB record with their pay history, and literally every single one of them got, like, multiple pay raises after the CCRB recommendation that they either be like terminated or suspended. Not a single one was suspended. Um, obviously none of them were fired. And I mean, I think I, I could be, I, I might not be a hundred percent sure about this, but I think the only CCRB complaint that led to somebody getting fired was Daniel Pantaleo five years after he killed Eric Garner. So, yeah, like, I mean, again, like, oh, it's just a few bad apples. Well, even, like, the worst apples, like, don't get disciplined in literally any way. Yeah, the murderous apples. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at the way that they... this is A lot of this is just framing, you know? I mean, a lot of it is kind of, I think, on the police department's part as an institution, trusting that most people will not look past the surface of these things. And so just making a surface gesture kind of keeps them in a situation where they can not only not reform any of this stuff that's getting complained about, but also not, I mean, literally give, you know, raises to these people. And I guess the bad Apple thing to me is funny because like, you know, I think you're gullible if you take this framing from them because they're using the same framing against the protesters in the opposite way, right? The protest is held to be morally as bankrupt as the most violent person in the protest, right? The entire thing yeah. goes down with it. If you treated the police the same way, well then, yeah, disband the whole damn department, you know? And I mean, even that's actually that's such a perfect analogy, but I would go a step further and say that, like, a lot of times um, in protests where, like, somebody's kind of, like, you know, has, like, fantasies of, like, being black block, like, oh, I'm going to, whatever, burn down the system, like, protests, like, more peaceful protesters will say, like, stop doing what you're doing, whereas, like, Stop trying to get the Antifa challenge coins. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Yeah, like, oh, you're very badass, but whatever. But it's actually very rare for, like, more peaceful officers to intervene when a cop is being violent. It's actually basically unheard of. I mean, and I feel like, I'm sorry, I can't place a specific case, but there was some instance of uh, of a, a female police officer who tried to intervene during a violent encounter, and, like, she was fired. So I would say that, like... The bad police and then the so-called good police that don't do enough to, like, intervene and stop an abuse are actually, like, worse than whatever ha- whatever dynamics happen in some, you know, unsavory protests where, like, again, like, whenever somebody's, like, burning shit down that they shouldn't be, like, the peaceful, pro- the, the other protesters will intervene and try to stop them or, like, at least um, kind of, like, publicly say, well, that's not what we're about, blah, 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 which, I mean... 
I don't know how I feel about that, but yeah, like the cops are actually worse than that. Let's, let me ask you one more question, and I, this is a huge topic, but we'll, we'll try to do it uh, as quick as possible, about a, another institution that uh, some argue should be abolished, the prison system. Uh, yeah. You've done a lot of work over the last few months showing about the crisis of COVID ripping through the prison system uh, and how it's, you know, obviously it's a problem for the, the inmates and the workers of the prison, but it's, it's just becoming like incubators for the virus in general. Uh, so I guess, you know, in a nutshell, like, what do you think the listeners should know about uh, what's going on in the prisons? Uh, they should know that almost no prisons took the correct uh, cautionary measures to protect either the inmates or the workers who, incidentally, and I mean, this is like, it pissed me off so much during like Cuomo's like, I am a great leader, like, things like he would be like, oh, we're so appreciative of essential workers. He never brought up like prison and jail staff. And these people are like in this, yeah, in this like very dangerous situation. And then they go home each night, which is different than like a lot of other places where COVID has like flared up. Um, I mean, it's like way worse. And like almost no public officials made good on their promise to like release a large enough like people susceptible to COVID to stop its spread, uh, both in the prisons and among jail staff who, again, go home every night to their families and communities. Um, so that's like, that's the more structural thing. I would, the thing that's like really upsetting is that, um, I've been writing about this, uh, inmate in Michigan at the Muskegon Correctional Facility named Michael Thompson, who um, is serving 40 to 60 years. And he's already been in prison for 25 years. And basically, so he sold pot to a police informant in 1994. Uh, and because he happened to be a gun owner and quote unquote, a habitual offender, like he had some other nonviolent priors, he got 40 to 60 years. And for years, this man has been a flawless disciplinary record, like, great person, like, totally unified, like, helps other men in the prison. It's just, like, a wonderful person. And he just, like, didn't get clemency. And the Democrat, Gretchen, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, refuses to grant him clemency because she's, like, waiting for the parole board to reach a decision, which is exactly, like, the kind of crappy thing Democrats do all the time, where they're like, we have to do the standard procedure. It's like, okay, in this case, it sucks. So you should just give him clemency. And, like, I found out a couple of days ago that he is now in the hospital with COVID. This is a state where weed is legal. So he is in in prison for a crime that is not a crime anymore. Yeah, exactly. And, like, Whitmer was super, like, oh, we're so excited to have legal weed. We can't wait for all the, like, tax revenue, blah, Mm -hmm. blah, blah. And, I mean, she's definitely aware of the case. Like, a lot of activists, like, people, like, exceedingly more prominent than I am, like, have talked to her about it, or her staff, at least, and, like, she knows about it. I, I think she's just being like, I have no proof of this. My hunch is that she's being like the worst kind of Democrat where she's being like very cautious to not get like really courted or whatever. But it's like ridiculous because like Michael is so clearly not a violent person and is old. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's infuriating. And I'm going to be really pissed if he gets like very sick or something bad happens. Like I mean, that really gets to what the point of uh, a carceral system and specifically mm-hmm. our carceral system is. 
there was a, a sense for many decades that it was about reform. I think that uh, uh, there are some voices on the margins talking about reform within prison, but it's mostly a punitive thing, you know, and it yeah. mostly falls to like norms and, and uh, behaviors of judges and DAs. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, just like the kind of tools that lawmakers armed them with, such as like mandatory minimums and habitual offender laws, which are completely insane, you know, and then it sort of allows like each part of that process to like not take responsibility. So like lawmakers pass some ridiculous mandatory minimum law and then prosecutors are like, well, it's just, you know, the, that's what the people wanted. We're just doing our jobs. And the judges are like, oh, well, our hands are tied because, you know, whatever. And it's just, yeah. And like, nobody, yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> Sorry, that was completely inarticulate, but I think no, that is, is obvious. Yeah, I think it's just it, it's just making the likelihood that the next uprising, you know, is all the more violent and all right. like th- this one we saw the precinct burning down in, in Portland. There was people trying to burn down a, a federal court building. Liberals are responding saying, "Well, calm down, like we can fix yeah. this." And what they're doing is not fixing it. Yeah. <laughs> Like even they're, they're even sending protesters to jail where where they're catching COVID. They're not getting COVID, fortunately, from marching. They're mostly getting it from going to jail for marching. And so there's it's it's just becoming more obvious to people who participate in these big demonstrations that pop up every few years that we have to go farther next time. And it's not farther in a way that the liberals are going to like. No, God, no. But I mean, and also, too, like if we talk about violence in the protests, I mean, most of the vi- actual violence against people has been committed by law enforcement. Right. Like, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with like burning down a federal courthouse is an effective political strategy, but yeah, that's we'll still agree, violence so you don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the other side of this thing is conflating the destruction of property with violence, which is more defined as like, (laughs) you know, injury or harm or like lethal threat or, uh, you know, or murder to a person, which is not what's happening on this side. But that conflation is causing this liberal thing to, uh, I mean, the center is really dark here and really, uh, it's ominous. And I think like probably a, a big, example of that a big bad omen this week was biden essentially trying to i don't know like split the difference on this and somehow you know i guess biden cannot conceive of himself being in support of something like uh an uprising against this institution so you know he's he sort of stated this week that he's going to like undo what's going on with trump's dhs agents by prosecuting anarchists on the basis of being like that's that's a belief system so prosecuting people on the basis of a belief system which violates your first amendment rights and uh is also what dhs is doing so yeah i mean we we have to go ahead ahead. (laughs) like uh curse um well also why would the federal government be involved in like local protests even if it were an actual threat that's crazy like talk about government overreach yeah. It is almost like, I mean, not the same, but like kind of like weirdly echoes like Trump being like, I will send like, you know, yeah, DHS to every big city. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's showing you that, uh, you know, the 
the liberal answer to this is runs the gamut from do nothing to do pretty much yeah. the same thing as Trump, <laughs> which is why we have to stand in some kind of opposition to that. No, I mean, that's totally true. Yeah, like the liberal perspective is ridiculous. And I mean, I do have to say that I think that when people talk about like abolition and defunding, like I, I, I'm not smart to figure this out, but surely somebody can come up with like maybe better framing that doesn't scare the fuck out of rich people or like suburban moms or whatever stereotype we're working with. Um, because it does, like defund the police makes it sound like, you know, no officer has ever been good or helped anyone ever and they should not get money, but that's not what it means. It means like maybe fewer like, you know, quote unquote anti-terrorist task forces that just like frame Muslim people. I think I figured it out. <laughs> what we have to do is apply shit that liberals like aesthetically to this, this packaging of defunding and reforming. So we're going to like bring in Marie Kondo to the police. <laughs> go, just, just pick up an officer and go, does this bring you joy? It doesn't bring me joy. Yeah. Do you need that tank officer? Yeah. So. <laughs> like, yeah well, this brings me joy. Just, tank. Yeah. yeah. Brings me joy to have a tank. Minimalize <laughs> the police. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you guys feel about this. Um, I So I'm like very staunchly a prison abolitionist. I'm not Oh, which I shouldn't say because I'm supposed to be a reporter. That's objective and blah, blah, blah. But we'll just whatever. We'll keep um, it out. Um, I, I do. I'm a little bit wary of the idea of police, like full-on police abolitionism. Because, like, honestly, and this could be my own ignorance, but so far, like, I haven't gotten an adequate explanation about how um, violent crimes, like actually violent crimes, like rape or murder, would be addressed. And, like, the answer I hear a lot is, like, community groups that decide within the community which like honestly kind of sounds like vigilante justice to me so i'm just like probably horribly misinformed but like again total prison abolitionist 100 percent. i don't know if like the police abolitionist argument makes that much sense to me well i i think there's a way of making the argument that just is liberal utopianism like mm-hmm. people th- who think that really police violence is at the root of crime somehow and if you just get rid of police then they're like these neighborhoods they won't be like traumatized or like criminalized anymore so there won't be crime and yeah that's ridiculous and i think like turning everything over to armed community watches is definitely not a solution and that's why i think you can't really abolish police the police that exist right now as long as we don't have some kind of social revolution that is also an economic revolution against the underlying reason that the police exist, which is to defend the class contradiction. Right. I mean, you definitely need to reimagine what the police are in terms of just uh, defending property. But I think something that's important to point out in regards to this argument about, because that really is it. There are so many things that the police do that are, you know, just defending private property. But, you know, at the end of the day, there is this question of rapists and axe murderers. And I think what's important to keep in mind when talking about this is that that argument is predicated on the assumption that police stop that stuff from happening at all. And I think in practice, that sort of thing exists and is often protected by the police or done by the police. And the idea that they stand in sort of a, a barrier against it is... I'm not going to say 100% not true, but it's definitely not cut and dry. And so coming up with an alternative to that, I don't think is as scary when you realize the problem. Pretty, It's pretty much legal. To, you, you can murder someone in America right now. 
probably get away with it. It's it's a, a thing that happens. You know, don't murder someone in America. Right. right now. Sorry. Maybe bleep you that out. Probably <laughs> will not get away with it. Well, if you're if you're a cop, if you're in, you know, if you're really rich, I mean, right. That's true. There are there are other things going on here than just this being like a, a you know a, a security guard or whatever that stands in between you. The cops are not Superman. You know, they're not out there just like kind of that one dimensionally keeping this sort of stuff from happening. So like. I don't know. I'm not going to go off, but I, I think, yeah, I, there should be one guy with the tank, you know, for that, for when John Wayne Gacy happens yeah. or whatever. No, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, clearance rates for murders and rapes are so pathetically low. It's either slightly over 50% or, like, under 50%. I don't have the exact numbers, but, like, yeah, I mean, most police do not. It's not like law and order where they, like, get catch the bad guy rapist. Like, obviously... Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a very good point. Like most murders are not solved by cops and that most rapes are not solved by cops. It's true. Um, but again, like the, 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 the sort of like police abolitionist people who are like community groups who decide on consensus. I'm like, no, like I've been to Occupy. Like that doesn't work. Especially if like people are like, Oh, we're the law enforcement now. I, don't know. I just wish everybody could read Alex Vitale. <laughs> or or maybe just be Alex Vitale. Like, they can just, like, turn on the Vitale switch in their brain when someone asks them one of these questions and just go into one of his classic monologues. Uh, but, unfortunately, we're not all Alex Vitale, so it's, it's, yeah. it's a difficult thing to talk about. I love him. He's one of my favorite people, just, like, as a person and as a scholar and advocate and whatever genius. Um, he's great. Like, he's definitely the absolute smartest person on this issue, for sure. Thanks for joining us, Tana Geneva. Yeah. Uh, let people know where they can find your work. Okay, sorry. I hate, like, self-promotion. <laughs> like the uh, Rolling Stone, um, The Appeal, which pays a dollar a word freelancers. And, yes. yeah, a bunch of other, whatever. I blather to everyone all the time. So, yeah. How about Twitter? Do you have a Twitter account? I do have a Twitter account, yes. And what is it? Oh, it's just... um the hell is it it's at uh, tana geneva yeah just tana geneva oh yeah at tana geneva excellent we'll put that in the show notes so people can find damn you are so bad at self-promotion <laughs> <laughs> but great thanks at other God. things so <laughs> thanks again for coming on yeah thanks. thank you for having me have a great day all right you okay, too. Thanks. okay and we're back wonderful interview there with Tana Geneva. Did I even say that correctly? Tana Geneva. Oh my god, I suck so bad. Sorry, Tana. Great job. Uh, we're back here. <laughs> just the three of us. Don't take it again or anything. No, no, it's great. <laughs> Don't cut anything. Uh, we're back here, of course, with, uh, in case you didn't notice, not the original three. We are here with uh, good old friend Jake Flores, who is pretty much our own personal philosopher of comedy. The silly Socrates, we That's call right. him. Wow. You die. I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know, man. Life's hard, I guess. You should maybe go into therapy if you hate yourself. The, the hilarious Hegel. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, let's do some more. The, uh, the gut-busting Gramsci. <laughs> the, uh, fuck, what are some funny words? The chuckling Charles Fourier. <laughs> <laughs> um, the madcapped Charles Morat. Sure. That sucks. I called you a fascist. <laughs> 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 he was a philosopher, though. 
Yeah, and he was very funny. Yeah, he I mean, was. Fascists, he was known for his comedy. Who we're, was the funniest philosopher? Comedy is very aesthetic, and fa- fascists were very good at the aesthetics. Oh, that's true. And this was pre-fascist too, so it wasn't even weighed down by all of the, uh, you know, the the bad conscience of actual fascism. It was fascism in its early, nicer, more comedic form. Yeah. Who was the funniest philosopher? That's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, Nietzsche Jake. was pretty funny. Nietzsche was pretty funny. Obviously, Jake Flores. Jake Flores, very, very funny, mm-hmm. funny comedian. We're, Andy and I were at a barbecue last night with some friends, and uh, one of the people there stood up and read Parable of a Madman by uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, and it was good. It was really good. It was a little unorthodox to have that at a party, but it was good. He did stand-up with Nietzsche's material. He said, who's drinking tonight? All right, give yourselves a round of applause. Now here's Parable of madman there's a, actually a really good kids in the hall sketch based on that parable of a madman yes god is dead cried nietzsche and the cry has been heard for years but for each philosopher there has been a cynic that is where the argument has stalemated until now god is dead and here is the body to prove it the world is shocked First, to find out God did in fact exist, and second, to find out he was now dead. I've got some good news and some bad news. I'll probably just plug it in instead of describing it. It's a very good sketch. Plug that baby right in there. Oh, yeah, comedy. Comedy, 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 comedy. Um, Jake, you have two podcasts. We all know about Pod Damn America. Uh, but you also have, uh, well, there's your problem, which is an engineering disasters pod. No, yeah, no. that's sorry. Right. No, what, that's that's Justin. That's What's your other passion podcast? of mine? <laughs> um, it's called uh, Red Scare. I'm just kidding. So it's <laughs> it's called Why You Mad, Why and you it's mad? essentially a spinoff of the first show. Uh, a friend of mine who is a, an anthropologist and a comedy booker and ten other interesting things like that at the same time. Uh, Came on in PDA a few times, my friend Luisa Diaz, and then the episodes kind of took on a life of their own, so we decided, you know, let's just turn it into its own thing. Cause, uh, you're essentially doing theory. You're doing comedy theory. Yeah, I mean, you know, amateurishly, like I'm, you know, I'm a comedian first or whatever, but, uh, you know, I mean, she's an art historian and I'm a comic, but we both work in comedy and the dynamics are supposed kind of opposite. I'm an amateur theory person who's a professional comedian and she's a, like kind of well she works in comedy but she's she's not a performer and then is kind of more like you know well versed on stuff having um you know went to college and stuff for it and uh you know it's just sort of an attempt to jam on that sort of shit and free associate and see if we can use uh all the tools of art history to understand pop culture specifically the vein of it that we work in it seems as though um a lot of people have a lot of opinions on comedy. It seems like it's kind of a hot, a hot button thing right now to, in, in, the, in the cultural sphere anyways. A lot of people complaining about cancel culture, of course, that old hobby horse. A lot of people talking about political correctness, what can and cannot be said. It's a very, very fraught field right now, I'd say. Yeah, well, the reason that I cringe when you call me a philosopher is that comedians generally sort of do think of themselves as philosophers or try to brand themselves that way. And more importantly, though, the 
the audience, or the people that are comedy fans, tend to subscribe to comedians as these like, you know, um, philosophers that are truth tellers. They're truth tellers, and that they transcend even something like academia by being very street and crudish and not being confined to, you know, the rules and systems of you know these ivory towers and stuff like that. And it's 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 complicated, but I think it's for the most part it's pretty stupid to think about things that way. If you, ha- I mean, if if you're a, like a left like Marxist thinker, I think it's you know there's pitfalls in thinking of something that is the output cultural product of society as being something that's powerful. It's at best a reflection, I right. think. You know, and then maybe you could go even further to put you know some sort of like. Uh, you know, some Gramsci sort of cultural hegemony onto art and things like that. And maybe like even, you know, you can look at like fucking stigma as a thing that's been changed through art. You know, I, I don't think that being a pure just materialist, it, you know, art is meaningless, is, is really that valuable in today's climate because observably you can sort of see like a lot of queer issues that were destigmatized through mainstream culture in the last year or the last 10, 20 years or so. Possibly it could have been the other way around. Could have been the material thing happened first and the reflection happened later. But, um, but for the most part, it's, I've been thinking about this a lot. And the reason I brought it up is that we should talk about this in the podcast a little bit is because Carlin's just back in the collective Carlin's Twitter back. consciousness. Yeah. He gets brought up all the time. When you were first on the podcast uh, over a year and a half ago, I think, we talked a bit about Carlin and what Carlin did, what he meant to people, who he was, and what he means now. So wh- why is he back? Well, because he's dead. And so when ah, someone's yes. dead, you can make them say whatever you want and basically say they would have agreed with you. But um, the reason that he's so advantageous for people to use as a political tool and arguments like that, I think is because everyone kind of understands that he's maybe the only person that did this thing in an actual transcendent way that actually uh, adapted, transgressed in all the right ways and um, had maybe an effect back on society. Everyone likes Carlin. No one argues about whether he's good or bad, really. People argue about whether he would have voted for fucking Biden or Trump or whatever. Everyone wants to have him on their side. That sucks so bad. Yeah, it does. I hate that about our culture. I hate that about our society. Yeah, and it's really interesting because, um, I mean, his daughter's still alive, and she's on Twitter. And she, I mean, as much as she can speak for what her father said, she'll chime in and say, you know, he didn't like voting, and people will still go, <laughs> no, you're you're wrong, you know, and. Um, I don't know. So this desire to use this like street philosopher as a tool for bolstering, you know, this like this like, I don't know, this fucking like online philosophy that everyone seems to be developing via their own like, you know, insane Facebook habit and Twitter feed and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. I think it's uh, it's kind of telling it as to how lost people are right now and how much people are attempting to jam like a fucking meaning and legitimacy onto their vague sort of um, resentments and derangements and things like that. What's that trend in comedy where a comedian will post their joke next to a picture of them, like making an insightful face? 
Yeah. Um, what is that called? Comedian a, grabs or whatever. There's like a Reddit for it. It's like stand-up shots yeah. or something. Usually it's just the person, it's a picture of them doing stand-up and then like just the words of their bit. It's just, that's like the same thing as those Winston Churchill quotes, those like epic, you know, <laughs> AZ quote pictures of, and half the time they're not real quotes or like it's yeah. a, well see, they're, they're, I know a lot of comedians who do them and they're, they're a promotional tool for when no one knows who you are, which is still just corny. Like I wouldn't do it, but like I get, you're trying to get people associating your face with, you know, your, the thing you said or whatever, but the, but the other thing that happens is that people do this thing I'm describing with Carlin with like other figures who they sort of want to like project onto whatever the fuck their argument was already going to be. And one thing that always made me my skin crawl, I think about it a lot. And actually, I don't know, nowadays this person might have been right, but I saw one with Louis C.K. back in his heyday before he was canceled and when he was, you know, Obama was booking him at the White House. Mm. He was sort of beloved cultural figure on both sides of the political spectrum. Bill Clinton was booking him at the White House. Uh (laughs) Jeffrey Epstein was booking him at the island. I mean, maybe, right? (laughs) Um, But I saw this fucking meme pulled up from Reddit that was like, it was Louis C.K. and then the words were him and you were supposed to read it in his voice and it was like, well, if you didn't want to get injured, then when you get arrested, just don't resist or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was very like conservative oh, logic about the one liner. <laughs> had the that's why he was classic in his day. But I mean, what those truth teller comedians do a lot of the times is not even really. I mean, they are just making points like that, and people are just so enraptured in like the the undercurrent that they've built in the momentum of making other jokes that they make points like that. And it's just, it, I think it just crests on the transgressive nature of what they're talking about. And yeah, half the time fucking Carlin was just up there essentially just doing philosophy, but he just peppered it around, you know, this, the art of getting a roiling crowd going. And then if you read his fucking like material, sometimes this isn't, this is a paragraph of like theory. This is not, the funniest fucking thing I've ever said. He would do the thing, of course, that comedians do, which was he would point out the absurdity of things. You know, obviously, that's like you guys' bread and butter. Um, and he'd also make these very bizarre and hilarious illusions, you know, connecting different things together in a funny way. But mostly, yeah, it was him up on stage, like, yelling about uh, how fucked everyone is and how fucked everything is. And it seems to me that, uh, like, his main point was that uh, you are getting screwed. And, I, and he was a working-class uh, Irish kid from Hell's Kitchen. So, like, it makes sense that he kind of had that particular perspective. Passed through the hippie movement and into this sort of, uh, yeah, this, this golden age, his golden years of uh, just being, like, a yelling philosopher up on stage. Well, you know what's kind of funny? I was just talking on my own show on PDA with Ken Klippenstein about, uh, for some reason yesterday we got on a big thing about Bob Dylan and what happened with him. Because he you know, sort of branded himself with the 60s. But when asked in specifics about his politics, he always says, oh, no, I just, it's about people, man. Like, I'm not a Democrat or Republican. And you realize what's going on there is that this person used the aesthetics of things that are expressly political, but then realized, you know, Republicans buy sneakers too, right? And so for, with art in capitalism, there is this brick wall you hit eventually where you're going to start diminishing your returns if you, actually sort of get into specifics and become political in any way, which is why that and then the fact that it's just a technical skill that keeps you from really reading or anything kind of crafts comedians into these blobs that are by nature unable to challenge anyone because the people you would have to challenge would inevitably 
hurt your own bottom line. But Carlin is the only person who kind of managed to do that because he did come out of the fucking 60s, yes. the civil rights movement. The hippy-dippy weatherman, right? Yeah, I mean, him and Lenny Bruce really were, like, they were not doing this Bob Dylan thing. They were purposely transgressing to the detriment of Bruce's own career. He died, so we'll never know what the fuck would happen to him. But, uh, you know, but Carlin somehow managed to buck back against that pressure every single time to the point where he was putting out specials and, you know, making a living and probably pretty well off and making solid points that weren't really um, ever, you know, sometimes they weren't funny, but they were never uh, cowardly until his death. And no one's ever been able to do that since. I don't think there's a single comedian, I could say. I mean, there's a lot of people I like that I think come close, but everyone seems to eventually kind of have to stop a little bit. It seems to me that, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, that uh, the idea of comedy, right, like the stand-up comedian, is a relatively new invention. It's an invention of modernity. It's an invention of capitalism. Like, to have a separate sphere of art and truth-telling that is simply comedy, what, what do you have to go back to, like, the jester and the court, right, like the clown and the fool, uh, before stand-up comedy, or you had to go to, like, Shakespeare would have some plays that were comedic and he'd have others that were serious. Like, when does comedy become, like, its own branded, um, I don't know, well, standalone thing? It's in the 20th century, right? I think so. I mean, stand-up comedy is, like, you know, jazz or something like that. It's, like, an American product, an American art form. But, like, comedy, just with a capital C, can mean... You know, it's like, ancient Greeks too, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I th- it meant something different in the ancient Greek times. It just meant like a, I think the opposite. It was a play that is not structured like a tragedy. Right. So like the, it, you know, instead of going up and then down and then or down and then up and then down, ending on a down note, it's the opposite. Or I think I'm getting that right. But like, um, yeah, co- like comedy is like a thing that has existed in like as in a, as a genre in you know storytelling for a long time, but spe- specifically stand up is a thing that, I mean, a lot of people say that, like, Mark Twain was the originator of it, like, the germ, because what he would do is travel and tell stories in a way that um, was humorous, right? And he used humor as a way of getting, like, these points across and stuff. And storytelling, the oral tradition, had been, you know, a thing before that. And I'm sure if you fucking had a time machine, you could go back and find somebody who did what he was doing in, like, Greek times or something specifically, but, like, at least as far as, like, it being recorded and then replicated, you get Mark Twain, and then you get, you know, honestly, like a lot of great American things, the fucking back-smoky lounge rooms of the mob, where the mob right, would hang out, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, I, well, actually... Before that, vaudeville, vaudeville right? Yeah. Right, yeah. So vaudeville, Which the, is the transitionary sort of art form for a lot of things that happen in the United States. Yeah, I mean, vaudeville is is like the the get the connection between like all that old jester like commedia dell'arte stuff and and blackface and blackface. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then you know what we have now or whatever, and that's why like uh, that's why in Mexico you know you still see like clowns and shit on like comedy shows and stuff because that stuff is st- I mean, it's the same source as what we're doing. It's just taken in a different direction or whatever. So it's actually not that weird. It's closer to the source of the thing to just, just weird shit with like clowns and stuff, right? Um, but what we did is specifically, I mean, you know, it's kind of born here in New York and. Uh, it's it's taken and made a little bit more pedestrian and stuff. And I don't know. I mean, it turns into this thing that, like, 
it goes from vaudeville into I guess what, what I'm trying to figure out right now historically on a timeline in my head is when it became a thing that you had like heroes in and that mm. you projected all this stuff onto because I don't think back in the day before like Bruce and fucking Carlin I don't think anyone was like you know Don Rickles is telling the truth up there you know <laughs> or like Sid one-liners about people's wives and shit yeah I mean, it is true that a lot of people hated their wives back then but that's incidental <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it wasn't transgressing. It was just saying that it's hot outside, you know? Well, transgression, I think, is the key word here, right? Because um, a lot of hay is made right now, of course, about uh, politically correct and woke culture. And there seems to be this canard that hangs out there, not just on the right, but even certain people who would align themselves somewhere on the political left, about there existing like a class character to comedy. Right? I mentioned that Carlin was like a working class boy from Manhattan. Yeah. Right? And that probably peppered a lot of the things that he believed and a lot of the stuff that he would say on stage, even when he was successful later on in his life. But it seems to me that there's this discussion, debate, God forbid we call it a discourse that exists online, especially on Twitter, about some sort of um, pure, unadulterated, and transgressive working class comedy that exists alongside an entire other cultural formation that is also a class formation of like the professional managerial class that is a very woke, tame, feel-good, sort of like uh, touchy-feely, trigger-warning-y uh, type comedic sensibility and that these two things are at war with each other and that ultimately that is a class war in some weird way right the idea was that these two culture wars were emblematic of an actual underlying class war and i think that honestly i mean it feels weird because this is I don't. I feel like I'm at the center of it a lot of times yeah and, yeah like, i feel the same way you're at the center of it a lot of times <laughs> <laughs> um but i mean i this is why like I do why you mad because I'm going to look at this the way you look at artistic movements that sort of everyone gets behind one idea and then it moves and it crests and it hits a point where there's a, you know a fucking antithesis or whatever and then something else has to come and move past it or whatever and I think that an alfheben if you will <laughs> the subsumption I the think sublation of comedy yeah I think um I don't know, like the last five years or so in this like, you know, in, in Brooklyn and where a lot of the, at the source of where a lot of this media is coming out of and in comedy and in these sort of scenes that are the, the root of a lot of humor that flows out of them and then becomes part of like society and culture at large and into, into the, the zeitgeist or whatever, um, we're, we're kind of we're part of a movement that's argument, that's assumption, was that there was this class division you're talking about, and particularly that there was um, a problem, you know, emphasized in exiting the vampire castle mm -hmm. about the left being too snooty and uptight, and that is Dower a byproduct. As well. Yeah, and scolding. Scolding, right. That's the word, right? And that's because... It's, it's these academics who aren't in touch with the working class people that they tend to represent, right? Or, or, or claim to represent. Or, yeah, attempt to represent. Right. What I meant. Um, but the argument then was that working class people are these crude, archie bunker, lumpen proletariat people who have a cohesive sense of humor that is generally crude and mean and cruel and, you know, like slurs and stuff like that. And um, 
and what's happening is that we are alienating them, right? But And we should try to talk like them because they love that. <laughs> yeah. If we're going to represent them, we have to say the same slurs as they say. Yeah, right. That was the that was the whole hypothesis, right? And I think actually what people aren't realizing and I, I don't know what seems to be making itself more apparent at the end of this as a project is that that's not necessarily true and it's not necessarily false. What's happening is that the working class, I don't think has a cohesive aesthetic, but that slur stuff, that offensive stuff that need to transgress. I think that actually does come from a cohesive class distinction. And I think that's actually like kind of middle-class bougie shit Ah, the tables have turned. I think what's going on, because I've gotten into a lot of arguments with people about this and then realized, like, wait a minute. Every time we talk about these, like, Louis C.K.'s and stuff, who, you know, he was a white guy, but he was saying the N-word, but it was cool because he was down or whatever. That stuff, I think, is coming from a place of power and cruelty and sadism. But, like, you know, as a comedian, you always you know, you just have this conversation where you're like, yeah, but it's funny because we don't actually mean it, right? Mm. And it's true, but it the the fact that it's like humorous, I think comes from a common place, and it's you know I don't know I mean just like a lot of people fuck I'm trying really hard not to get into cancel culture because it's just a fucking yeah, pit you know we hate that we talked about it last time and it's a circular never ending argument that never <laughs> goes anywhere so but. Try to avoid it, but if you can't, go ahead. Well, the argument, you know, against it a lot of times is people saying, like, well, I would have, uh, you know, this, this would have helped stopped me from learning, right? Because I said offensive things when I was younger, but, uh, y- you know, if the Internet had been mean to me, I would have become a Nazi instead of a socialist or whatever. And what you're describing, if you're a person who was young and, like, had those things instilled in you as a kid... It probably came from the situation you were in, which was one of being involved in a power structure that was mean to other people. And I kind of think it has to do with race. And I think that especially in light of all this police stuff, we're kind of seeing that, like, you can't be just a class reductionist, especially in America, where so much of the power structure... You can. A lot of people are trying. Right. (laughs) Not sure how well it's working out for them. They have to write off, like, an entire... Uh, diverse, like, black-led, multiracial youth movement that's taking on the police state. You could try, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you can try, yeah. But I don't think it's a, it will be successful in any way. Me neither. And I think that the, this, this, the irony stuff is largely along color lines, I think. I don't know. There always, there's always an example of someone who's like, I'm a POC edgelord or whatever. Yeah. I'm kind of one of those. I'm kind of both of those things and kind of sure, not, you sure. know? Um, or at I, least I was at one point, you I'm know? I'm trying to, like, you, you remember the blue-collar comedy tour from the 1990s? Yeah. Right? Larry the Cable Guy. What was it? Uh, Jeff Foxworthy? Yeah. Right? Um, Ron White and Bill Ingvall. There you go. So I was not obviously a follower or a fan of that. Even at the time, I thought it was like really bizarre and contrived because it seemed to be conflating. It was, it was basically saying there's a class character to this, this tour that we're doing to these comedians. Right. But like to the extent that it, it had that class character, it just seemed to be culturally Southern, right? right. <laughs> like that seemed to be the whole bit. 
Uh, but that's that, I guess, was like this attempt to brand something in the 90s or 2000s as different, as not middle class, but as blue collar. Um, and that that always reminds me of these these bizarre debates that happen online, like you were talking about with like what working class comedy is. And there's this one particular incident that that I remember from last year at work that I think is in my experience as like a blue collar worker, as like a union member, as a construction worker, is like the height of working class comedy. Do you want, do you guys want to hear it? Should I, should I tell you the joke? Please. It's got a lot of slurs though. I love it's it. Working class. I'm just kidding. It doesn't have. <laughs> Which is going to be the point of the whole story. But uh, yeah, I was working on this job, and it was me and working closely with three laborers. Right, you know, so I'm above. I'm like the tradesperson, and they're the laborers. So there was a Irish guy from the Bronx. There was a West Indian guy from St. Vincent, and there was a Honduran guy who obviously spoke Spanish. And when you're working. Like, the point of comedy on the job is to make the time go by and also to try to, like, traverse the distance culturally between people Mm -hmm. because you're trying to – everyone's trying to get along. To build a rapport. To build a rapport. To, like, create a gang that's going to be able to last the duration of the job and not turn on itself, you know, essentially, in the crudest terms. So, like, you have three people from, like, completely different walks of life. One day at work, the, uh, the West Indian guy was trying to describe to the Honduran guy um, some dish that he had, like some Spanish dish. And he's like, yeah, I think they call it the sadoche. <laughs> and the Honduran guy's like, that, that's not even a word, sadoche. What are you talking about? He's like, no, sadoche. And they start yelling about sadoche. But it's a nonsense word in Spanish. So eventually, we're all batting, like making fun of the West Indian guy and <laughs> saying like sadoche this, sadoche that. But then right. Sadoche becomes starts to become the thing that all of us would say when a boss came. We'd all go, Sadoche! <laughs> and that was the word to let people know, like, keep your head down and work. You know, don't yeah, talk yeah. and do everything. So then Sadoche, as, like, the weeks went on, turned into a boss. So, like, you'd be like, oh, man, which Sadoche is coming today? Like, Sadoche number one or Sadoche number two? Like, Sadoche number one being the owner of the company, Sadoche number two being, like, the guy below him, like, the hiring super guy. So, Sadoche, like, in our parlance, but it was this nonsense word in Spanish that the West Indian guy picked up that we turned into a thing about bosses. Then we would call each other Sadoches if the other person was being, like, you know, too aggravating on the job. You fucking Sadoche. And then every time we would say, this is where, like, the... The comedy of it comes in because it's already weird, but the fucking Irish guy from the Bronx, as far as he possibly could be from from the West Indies and uh, from Honduras, every time he heard Sadoche, whether he was like five feet away or 50 feet away, he'd always go, what? The fuck is a Sadoche? <laughs> <laughs> and everybody would laugh and he would laugh. So the point is, there was like this absurd thing that happened on the job. All of us coming from different backgrounds, we all picked up on it and we used it to mean different things on the job. And it was funny to us and we kept using it and using it. There was, I suppose, like an ethnic character to the fact that it was a made-up Spanish word that a West Indian guy like yeah. screwed up and couldn't understand. But it became like this multicultural signifier for all of us to be able to communicate something at work. And that communication ultimately became hatred of the bosses, hatred of the sadoches. And... I think that that is an example, like, and I've seen this a lot of times, of how, like, real blue-collar comedy is. It's people trying to traverse this distance between one another and to try to create, like, kind of in-jokes and, like, ways of communicating with each other that are funny and entertaining, but also serve, like, a real social and structural purpose on the job. 
Yeah, man, I think that is uh, probably a pretty good microcosm of like how, or like the origin point of how something spreads and then kind of becomes a like, bigger cross-cultural stuff, which is the stuff they're trying to play on in that blue-collar comedy tour. And I have mixed feelings about it because, you know... I, I think part of what's going on with that attempt by the Blue Collar Comedy Tour to sell a class identity as a product as uh, in opposition to, you know, most of what comedy was at that point, which was like, you know, guys in leather jackets smoking cigarettes in fucking Brooklyn and L.A. or whatever, or in Brian Manhattan back then. But, um, you know, what they were selling was, I think... Same thing Trump sold, right? Which was this identity of, like, you're a rugged, working-class person, but because we have to sell this in mass and to people who have the money or the will to buy it, that shit was being eaten up by middle-class people, right. not working-class people, really, to the extent that there is, like, a fucking middle-class, we get into that or whatever, but you know, suburban people who are, like, bikers on the weekend back, or whatever. Back to Marlon Brando, right? Rebel Without a Cause, that whole era, you know, like, the working-class biker guy becomes this sort of archetype for what middle-class people, like, not just see as cool, but also want to make their own culture and, and, and brand themselves I, as. I mean, biker culture itself comes from, like, a guy was assigned to cover a motorcycle derby out in California and it was a really boring derby but there was one like five minute fight and so he just exaggerated it and said that all these biker gangs were swinging chains at each other and that became like the topic of many B-movies and like other hyperbolic articles and as a result this whole biker culture sprung up emulating this fictional depiction of biker culture and this is you know I think these trends of like different kind of identitarian comedy uh, tours like you had the blue collar tour, the kings of comedy. What was like the alt comedy one? The, Patton, the, uh, the comedians the of comedy, the original kings of comedy. They were making fun of the kings of comedy. No, it was like the comedians of comedy. Oh, the comedians of comedy. Yeah, yeah sorry. So and, and and like as a kid, you like you try to identify with like, oh, am I am I more into the black comedy scene right. or the working or like the redneck comedy scene or am I like an alt comic guy? And of course, all that stuff is funny. Because these comedians like toured around and told jokes in different kinds of rooms and like found the kind of room that worked for them, and so it is humor that like relates to and appeals to common people. But then it becomes like packaged and sold as a certain kind of identity, and that identity gets confused with the common sense of like where that content comes from, and people start talking about the identity more than they talk about the actual origins. Well, well, like it, let's just let's just address the the slurs thing, right? Because you know, again, one of the sort of ideas of like this working class monoculture of comedy is that slurs are inherently funny. I'll be honest with you, like I'm around slurs. You know, not every white guy that I work with name the slurs, slurs around. All the slurs. It'd be easier to name the slurs that were not used. One of the the great things you can do to break up hegemonic whiteness is to use long dead uh, white ethnic slurs like calling Portuguese pork chops or uh, Swede squareheads and krauts and mix and all that. But that's we're talking about the really bad ones. Like you know, this idea that that that's seen as 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 comedy. Right, like on the job site within blue collar communities or whatever, it's never used in a funny way. In fact, when somebody drops a slur, it's usually when like you know all the the black or the Spanish guys or the Asian guys walk away, and it's always said very kind of conspiratorially, like nudge, nudge, wink. Right. Like, oh, did you see that N word? It's never like it, it's it's never funny. 
it's not an attempt at comedy. It's a, it's an attempt of like excluding other people and trying to create this sort of uh, false, but like. Uh, I think attractive to some racist people, fraternity of people who are inside this club, but it's not funny. Right. You know, it's not there for comedy. It's well, there for a million other social purposes, but not to like bond with one another over what we find interesting or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's complicated, and I think the complication. I never here, say slurs, by the way. I never say slurs, and I push back on slurs in the workplace, but you can't push back against all of them. Not yeah. in the New York City building trades. I just want to make that clear. Sure. Well, I mean, I will go ahead and say this for me and other people. I've said of all the slurs because I'm a comedian, and it was a tool, a, a tool in the toolkit at one point and like the what's complicated the thing that got us into this mess to begin with i think is that they can be really funny but we're conflating the use that you're describing which is evil and a power structure thing and And destructive of solidarity especially when you're in a union exactly we're conflating that with the ironic use which is funny and it is i mean there's nothing more powerful than someone who is the victim of a slur turning the fucking slur around that shit's fucking hilarious there's a reason it's like so often done by so many groups you know um this is a subversion but we're talking about transgressing in two different directions, I guess, which is, I fucking hate to use this language. because Punching up and punching I, I down. I hate it. I hate it. it. But there's like, <laughs> I mean, that's what that is, you right, know? Right. And everyone is just kind of reconfiguring their argument and going, well, I'm punching. It's actually, when I punch down, I'm actually punching up. It doesn't make any right. fucking sense. Like, say what it is. It's just because it makes you laugh doesn't mean it's actually like not breaking up solidarity and things like that. It's, well, that's what's so fucking... That, that's the problem with this like street philosopher stuff, right. which is that we kind of came to a conclusion incorrectly, I think, that like if something is funny, then it must be, have truth in it. But it's actually... Things can be very funny and be bad and the opposite of truth, and the value in it is simply that it's funny. And, and when people think that if something's funny, it's true, this is where I think a lot of revulsion to political correctness comes from, is they're like, well, you know, I actually think that Dave Chappelle is funny. But people on Twitter say I'm not allowed to think that. So that means that I'm one of these people who secretly has the bad thoughts, and so I'm going to align myself with the intellectual dark web or something like that. Because yeah, I, a very funny group of people. But it's totally, I mean, it's totally okay to enjoy or find something funny that you don't agree with, and the comedians probably don't agree with it either. They're just... Their job is to make you laugh. And it's literally a job. Like what we've been talking about with this long history is a commodification, a packaging of this into a saleable unit for an industry. Right. It's their job to like make you laugh, but because they have an entire career devoted to doing just that. Well, it gets reified through that packaging and selling, right? And so that's why I think with this idea idea of characterizing Working class people, especially as having a cohesive aesthetic at all, is where things get really blurry and, and like it's a kaleidoscope. It's confusing because all, every the further I think the further up you go, the more there are cohesive kind of cultures because you know rich people get to make art and they get to make it at a professional level where it's the front page of Spotify and stuff like that. And then hot, fucking really rich people, but just, they have their own insane, you know, they're on Epstein is their fucking art. You know I mean? That's, that's where they have to go with this stuff. But the further down you get, you know, you really don't get to have a control over the culture when you make something. What you get is the thing you're describing with the Sidoche thing, yeah, which Sidoche. is, it's just, you get these, these microscopic little fucking syndicate type cells of culture and humor that right. 
you know, that, that uh, are fun, but they're they're not universal because it's just you and your fucking friends. We just made it up. It's just four guys. And if I saw the West Indian guy in five years, the first thing we'd say to each other is, Sidoche. But nobody would have any fucking idea except for us. But it'd still be funny. But that's why this idea of trying to characterize, like, the fucking lumpen proletariat as crude or as a woke scold or as anything is inherently a misstep because it's not universally anything. There are fucking... I've, I've, I grew up poor. I know tons of people who are the meanest people on earth some of them are also the funniest people on earth uh, some of them are fucking woke scolds you know it's the you run the entire spectrum because there isn't solidarity among working people really well like let's let's just call it for what it is like the reason why we look to the working class look to ourselves as working people as the subject of history as that force which could come together to overthrow the existing order it's not because our particular interests are universal it's certainly not because we have a universal culture right or certainly not a universal ethnicity or even outlook on the world it's because we exist as a negation within this system because we as this creative power have a universal interest in all of our particularities to overthrow this system and the power to do it. But it's not, none, none of that ever says, none of that theory is to say that there even could be, or even that it's desirable, that there be a single hegemonic working class culture that exists in all places and all times. The idea is completely absurd. That's never how culture works, mm-hmm. ever. Yeah, I mean, unless we literally established one via, you know, the dictatorship of the all that shit, you know, we manufactured like, you know, Soviet stuff. Well, I guess Yakov Smirnov, you know, that yeah. would be the end product of that. <laughs> Not even him though, because he fucking hated that shit. Um, yeah, it's it's bizarre to think about. You'd have to like teach everybody Esperanto as the communists wanted to do in the early 20th century yeah and then only have like certain comedic words in esperanto for the kind of comedy that you wanted to have Man, it is pretty low. problematic that we're not speaking esperanto right now i know it was a <laughs> we failure should do better I, th- I think uh the why this discourse is just so boring to me not what we're talking about this is a roller coaster ride but <laughs> the, the whole, all the cancel culture and pc bullshit is first of all it's been going on for decades it's like enough is enough pcu it's, with jeremy pivot nobody's really saying anything new it's just repackaged over and over again and second of all like in a class struggle you're not just working with all of these like singular working class people who have the same cultural sensibilities or whatever part of what makes class struggle uh, so transformative is you're working with a lot of different people who have very different perspectives on the world different backgrounds and they have to come together to achieve something material for themselves and so that's why i think People don't really know what their politics are until they've been through a struggle like that. Right. Uh, and so, you know, if you want to unionize, for example, any kind of workplace, chances are you're going to have to work with someone who says things that aren't PC. You can't fire them or kick them out. And you wouldn't even think of doing that because that's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to get everyone on the same page so you have power together as workers. And so that kind of overcoming has, has nothing to do with this discourse of like, is it okay to say this or, or not? It's like, we're like becoming a new uh, identity together through mutual struggle based on our material interests. Yeah, and I think something that's like really simple but just got completely stepped past in this whole vampire castle thing is that the whole argument of exiting the vampire castle was to tolerate it when people were ways that aren't necessarily up to social snuff in a high, high, you know, holding people's behavior to a high, high standard. It was to tolerate that shit. It wasn't to 
argue that it is the best way to possibly be and it's actually making society better when you are immoral you know if there is a singular comedic culture that spreads as the working class creates material solidarities on the ground and organizes itself through self-activity across the globe we don't know what it'll look like but it would look something like eight nine billion workers all yelling at the same time so don't <laughs> Yeah, into battle. <laughs> into battle <laughs> against the ruling class. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the strongest tool we have as workers, besides the general strike, is the inside joke. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> what is an inside joke of 8 billion people but uh, a rallying cry, a watchword mm. for revolution? And the, the bosses will collectively say, explain the joke! <laughs> is it about me? <laughs> and then they'll all yell in unison, Yeah! <laughs> Vamos en mi lancha, Santa Rosa, vamos en mi 